It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. The government advises public sector bodies to turn down the temperature dial in an effort to conserve energy and reduce costs. Should we all be following their example? Start with that, the public sector, setting temperature limits, uh, consolidating buildings so we're not heating the whole building, um, making sure we're switching things off in a really effective way. A new report from Cyber Safe Kids shows that existing age restrictions on online gaming are not working and our children are being exposed to violent content online. And later, Liz Truss takes the reins in number 10 as she becomes the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Our country was built by people who get things done. I am determined to deliver. Thank you. Join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. As always, it's hashtag tonight, VMTV. Well, with fuel prices set to continue to climb over the coming months and concerns about supply, senior government figures met earlier today to discuss a package of measures and has asked for there to be a temperature limit of 19 degrees Celsius in public sector buildings. Is the government setting an example for us all and asking us to cool it with our energy use? Well, joining me to discuss this and a lot more is Social Democrat TD Jennifer Whitmore, Fianna Foyle Senator Fiona O'Loughlin, HR expert with the HR suite, Caroline Reedy, and political reporter for the Irish Times, Jack Horgan Jones. You're all very welcome to the programme. Jack, I'm going to start to you because it was this meeting this afternoon where they were to agree a strategy to try and reduce energy consumption. What agreement came out of that? So it looks like there's a memo going to Cabinet tomorrow which is going to detail a strategy starting in the public sector to try and reduce the use in uh, offices where basically civil servants work. And I think that the thrust of this, as you say yourself, is to try and bring down the headline use of energy by enforcing a top temperature of 19 degrees. The reason why I think they're doing this is to set an example. Now, the obvious criticism of that is that anyone who's received a utility bill in the last six or eight months doesn't need to be told there's an energy crisis coming. And obviously, the energy crisis is much bigger than can possibly be countenanced or countered by something as simple as turning down the thermostat in an office. So I think that there's a risk for the government in being seen to be going further down the path of advisory measures and not bringing enough to the table in terms of the kind of cost of living measures that will really defray and really kind of help alleviate some of the political pressure where it's most acute, which is at the household level. People, I think, don't want to be told as much about turning down the thermostat. They want to be told and they want to find out more about how the government, how the state is going to protect 
protect them during this winter, which is really going to be like a winter that we haven't seen in uh, this part of the world since you know the late 1970s. And the Irish Times were also reporting today that they might be recommending that um, public sector bodies look at staffing and looking at the use of their buildings, perhaps shutting off floors that aren't used, turning off the heat, or maybe bringing staff closer together um, in an effort to try and reduce the number of radiators, I suppose, that they yeah. have to put on in, in a public uh, sector body. Is that in this memo as well? I believe so. And I mean, it does kind of conjure up funny images of people kind of huddling together for warmth, which I'm not sure is the, the political win that the government might think it is. But I think that this is very much the, the, the first step. And I don't think that things are going to stop here. Because really, while they're talking about turning the temperature down, the political temperature is going up. And the need to intervene in around the budget with this package of one-off measures that we've heard so much about is also going up. And you can see that the headline figure attached to that package of one-off measures is marching up as the political pressure increases. About two or three weeks ago, it was 1 billion. Now that's grown to about 1.5 billion. We believe it could be heading to 2 billion or north. That could be where it ends up because the government is really under huge amounts of pressure here and knows that it has to deliver. And really, given the fact that there's huge debates at European level and national level over whether and how we can even design an effective energy price cap or a windfall tax, what they know works is backstopping the thing with a load of cash. So I think that's that's going to be the main strategy and that's what people are waiting for delivery on. Yeah, now in terms of these measures to you know third, turn down the thermostat, it isn't keeping with what's been asked in other European countries, isn't it? It is. Look, it's not bad advice, but like the, every time the government has offered something like this as advice, it's courted a backlash. I mean, remember the Reduce Your Use campaign from earlier on this year? I had documents under FOI describing when that was being rolled out that they were, they were really concerned about a backlash because people recognise that there are things within their gift, but they also recognise intuitively that this is a challenge that is probably much bigger than things like driving more slowly on the, on the motorway to reduce your petrol consumption or having shorter showers. But if we look at somewhere like Germany, they have, in fact, done this, haven't they? They've turned down the thermostat, turning off the lights in public buildings. I yes. mean, it is quite practical. It is happening elsewhere. Yes, no, it's and, and, and I think they've turned down the temperature in public swimming pools as well. But what else have they done? They've done a 65 billion euro package to backstop households when it comes to the cost, meeting the cost of this thing. So, you know, this is, this is a sliver of the plan, I suspect. This is only the beginning, and if it stops here, they'd be in for, for serious trouble. Yeah, Fiona, it is a little dystopian, isn't it? Turn down the heat, huddle in together, wear your coat, put on your thermals, do everything you can. That's your job. We're putting the responsibility on you. No, I, I wouldn't call it that at all. There's no doubt that there needs to be an exceptional government response, and I believe that there will be, and the Taoiseach signalled that even as, as lately as today. And... The budget, which is going to be in less than three weeks, is going to have, I think, significant impact in terms of energy costs. The state is absolutely listening. They have to take this on board. And the commitment was made that there would be a response similar to the pandemic in terms of the COVID payments. I met with a small hotel just yesterday in my own constituency in Kildare, and they were talking about their bills going from 71,000 to 246,000. Yeah, and we're going to come to, to businesses in, the, in a minute. I just want to focus on this particular um, message that's going out to public sector buildings to turn down the thermostat, etc. Do you have any idea of the, of the savings that will come from that? Yeah, I think it's important that public sector leads. And when you listen yeah. to some of the advice and some of the um, regulations that we think will be put in place tomorrow, like I really think it possibly should have been done years ago. It does absolutely make sense where it's appropriate to reduce lighting, to reduce heat and also to ensure that every floor within a building is used. To me, 
that's an important measure. We have to lead, have to give that message. The power of one is very important as an individual. And then the package that will come from the government on the, 20, on the 27th of September. And also, I think the EU meeting on Friday, where they will look at decoupling the price of gas with the ESB, which is really important. And so of it's course, part of a suite of measures. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jennifer, do you think this is a good idea? I, the first thing I'd say is the government declared a climate crisis three, four years ago. I can't believe that this hasn't already been done, you know, that they wait until now to actually implement something like this. Um, besides that, I think to talk to people and say that, you know, talk about the power of one, absolutely everybody knows they're going to have to do something, but people are doing that already. I think it's quite tone deaf of the government to be coming out at this stage in the crisis and saying, look, we're turning down our heating, you need to turn down yours as well. You what don't think people, they're leading by example, as Fiona says? No, I think what the, what, what the government need to do is they need to show leadership and, and the societal assistance that they're going to be giving to people. People need to know how the government are going to help them. They are going into a very, very difficult winter. Businesses are going into a very difficult winter. What the people are not hearing from the government are the measures, the tangible measures that are going to put money back into their pockets, that are going to actually help them cope with the incredible pressures going to put on them and their uh, families. Caroline, do you see any difficulty implementing this? I think for most, this is a very practical measure and most businesses will welcome this. But I think the bigger issues here are that we're seeing so much change happening, especially around expenses, that for a lot of business owners that they're looking at this as, okay, that's going to be a reduction in some element of their bills. But ultimately, the bigger issue here is the fact that the ASB bill, the electricity bill, has gone so astronomical that for a lot of businesses now, their expenses are really not making sense. So unless there is a very serious budget in relation to supporting small businesses particularly and businesses in general, I think we're going to see a lot of reconsideration in relation to staffing, numbers, et cetera, because it's going to become unsustainable. So I think this is a very practical measure. I think it's welcomed in most quarters for what it is. But I think we need to see a really significant support package now to go with for businesses. Um, I want to speak to uh, David Briody, who is on the line there. He's of Briody Beds in Oldcastle in County Meath. It's a family-run business and it manufactures a range of beds and, and bedroom furniture, rather, and it employs over 100 people. Uh, thank you for joining us on the line. Uh, you're obviously not a public sector uh, building or a public sector worker. You have your own private business there. How have your energy bills changed in the last year? Hello, Kira. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, our bills have more than doubled um, in the last six months. Um, we were, as you say, we're in rural uh, need, and uh, unfortunately, we can't wait for governments or for budgets. Um, we have to act now. As you mentioned, there we have a hundred staff, and we, we we pay them on a weekly basis, and we'd like to continue doing that, Kira. So we've had to make the decision to uh, invest heavily uh, in, in a solar PV system to put it onto one of our manufacturing facilities. We have four in the area. So but, you uh, have actively, David, trying to make energy savings in your business in the last couple of months. You're well ahead Correct. of the government. Correct, yes. Um, we're, we're, with no assistance, we, we changed all our lighting to LED lighting a couple of years back. So now we're making a decision to go with the solar because it's, it's a win-win scenario for our company because it will help reduce uh, our costs and, and keep our staff employed. And do you so have, we have solar panels uh, installed already, David? Did you get that turned around that quickly? Unfortunately not. It's that's bureaucracy in this country again, Kira. Um, 
we're waiting on the ESB. Our application went in on the first week of June of this year, and I'm still waiting on uh, the application to be sanctioned. Uh, the company we've employed can't do anything until they get uh, the email from the ESB. So we're still waiting on that. It's very frustrating because uh, I'm going into work every day knowing that I'm paying you know, serious prices for electricity when I shouldn't be. Um, I don't know why it's so slow. It's something the government are going to have to look at. I mean, solar is, to me, it's the way forward because uh, we work a five-day week. So at the weekends, our system will still be generating power and that power could go back onto the network and it could be used in our community for, for argument's sake to power our local school, our local GAA, our local community and athletic clubs. Right. So I, I, I don't understand why they're not grasping the solar panel situation, but it, for us, it's, it's a no-brainer and the system will have paid for itself in less than two years. Uh, I just want to put that back to my panel, uh, Jennifer, because, you know, this is about, as you said, Fiona, taking personal responsibility. You know, you're going to be telling public sector buildings to turn down the thermostat. And I suppose the feeling is the private sector companies would be asked to follow suit. But here is a private sector company that back in June of this year, you know, started trying to make a difference, to make savings. And four months later, they're really just copped, you know what, rock and a hard place. Look, I, I can completely sense and understand David's frustration. That's simply not good enough. And I think all of the measures that are in place at the moment in terms of grants with SEAI and those that hopefully will come in the budget, there needs to be an absolute simplification of the process, both in terms of grants and in terms of the implementation and being able to get things in place, such as the solar so that, panels yeah, that are I mean, there. This, this particular that individual has to be was willing to pay, yeah. I think, up to €80,000 to have this solar yeah. panel installed. June of this year, made the application and four months later hasn't even got approval. I mean, I would say David will be lucky to have that by the end of the year. Is that not where the government's priority should be rather than telling public sector buildings to turn down your thermostat? I think it should be in tandem with the leadership from public buildings in the public sector. But we absolutely have to examine why we have a situation like that. It's completely wrong. And then again, in terms of the grant processes, which are taking far too long as well. There must be simpler ways, even in terms of reducing the cost of goods as opposed to people having to apply for a grant. So I absolutely agree. All of those areas need to be looked at. Things need to be simplified in terms of people taking that step and wanting to make a difference themselves. The money Jack, is really available. Shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised here. I mean, we've seen the delays and the frustration mm. among householders who've tried to retrofit their homes. I mean, the government are asking people to take responsibility, to do what they can. And when people try, they're just frustrated by the process. Yeah. Like, I mean, how many solar panels are going to be installed between now and when the energy crunch of this winter really comes on stream? How many attics are going to be insulated? Even if we proceed at a rate of knots, even if it exceeds the historical rate of installation of these things, I don't think we're in a position where it's going to make a meaningful difference. And when it comes to home energy uh, insulations, we had a big intervention on that already earlier on this year. It was the start of February, just before the invasion of Ukraine, when a big Green Party branded uh, program of um, deep retrofits and there was one-stop shops 
and all the rest of it was announced. But like you've seen the reality on the ground rapidly outstrip that. You know, there was a lot of talk about how the grants are going to meet 80% of the cost of insulating an attic. But of course, we've had a huge amount of cost inflation. There's a huge amount of pressure on the sector. There's a, there's a skills shortage that people are dealing with. So like, it's all well and good, perhaps for this time next year, perhaps we would have made a, a sizable dent. But you have the Climate Change Advisory Council today coming out and saying these things need to be simplified. This is not something I think that is going to make a tangible difference this winter. This I, wish, winter. I wish it were. Yeah. I wish it were. But I don't think, I think that realistically, uh, ironically enough, the backstop here is cold, hard cash. You yeah. know, I think that's and what's going to make a difference. And, and there's an absence for, for smaller businesses of any kind of support schemes that we saw during COVID. Yeah, and I'm conscious, uh, Caroline, you're here sort of as, as a HR expert, but you are running a business, aren't you? You have an office. What kind of supports do businesses need now uh, facing into this winter? Because, you know, introducing your solar panels or retrofitting your office, it's clearly not going to happen in the short term. No, I think most businesses no different to our own. We've invested a huge amount in energy saving and, you know, trying to do all we can to proactively address it. We've seen expenses from everything from rent to heating to energy, etc. increase. Um, I've staff working a hybrid model, so they're working some in the office, some from home. And ultimately, I suppose we're seeing both in businesses and from clients as well, where people are now starting to say, well, look, the cost of my commute, particularly in the Dublin region where they're sitting in a car, actually, that's becoming cost prohibitive now. And actually, I want to come back into the office because the cost of my energy, the cost of other things. So a lot of people now, you know, they're finding the challenge of is remote better, is hybrid better, is... There's so many cost increases for individuals and for businesses. I think we all welcome the fact that there needs to be support packages because otherwise we will see businesses who have, you know, loads of issues in terms of expenses, but viability is going to start becoming, a, you know, a question for all of them. And that's really, really serious for the economy. Yeah, David, is viability a question for you at this point, given the extortionate prices that you're paying for your energy bills? Yeah, look, it's not sustainable on, on any level for, for any um, company throughout Ireland. And it's a balancing act of how much you can absorb and how much you can pass on to your customer because inevitably you'll be too expensive on the market uh, with your product. So that's why we, we've made the decision to um, invest in, in the solar PV system and get it up and running as soon as we can, as quick as we can. Uh, Jennifer, I was speaking to somebody yesterday who was saying, look, the government are aware now that businesses need support. They're going to need, as Jack says, cold, hard cash just to get through this winter, but that they're scrambling to introduce these COVID-style schemes quick enough. Um, my question will be, what have the government been doing for the last nine months? It's been clear that we were going into a very, very difficult winter. Uh, they should have been setting up systems to enable a very uh, targeted approach being taken to support uh, individuals, families and businesses. Social Democrats today, we had our thinking. Um, and what we're calling for is a COVID-like support scheme and an energy crisis support scheme that will actually, as you say, put, put cash back into uh, household, you know, individuals' uh, pockets, into businesses' pockets, similar to how it was done during COVID because people need immediate support. Think, well, Jennifer? we're actually working through the the, um, the actual details that we'll have our, our uh, alternative budget in two weeks, but it will have to be a significant investment uh, by the government. I mean, the other thing that they're going to have to do is expand, and we believe we're calling for them to expand the fuel allowance um, and actually bring in to people who are uh, on the working family payments into that as well. So that measure would cost 300 uh, million. But we need to start looking at people who are on low incomes, but also people who are on middle incomes, because they are finding it very, very difficult. And again, businesses, um, you know, that are that are are going to need that uh, that help to get through 
the, the, the next few months. And uh, government to, need to be doing that very quickly to, and not waiting any longer right, to actually implement it. You know, it, it, it's not going to be much longer than two weeks when we are going to have those measures unveiled. But it's not fair either or accurate to say that the government hasn't made any decisions in relation to it. Every one of us has received the ESB subsidy. And quite so a lot in of investment has gone into in public transport. The, the, the €200 Euro yes, credits? Yes. So, and given the fact that we're talking about bills going up from 2000 to 4000 yeah. to potentially 6000 no, but, but a year, do you think the that the €200 Euro that, credit has made a difference to but, people at this point? But the point is that something was put in place. Look, it, it was Putin, an, a non-targeted approach that went into everybody's... Immigration. It took He's six weaponized months. power, and six that's months. where this is all coming from. Fiona, but the, in terms the point of public is, transport, six months the fact for the that 20% of all public transport uh, was taking off the top line, 50% for young people. And I'm really glad that only okay. yesterday that was rolled out to actually all I private know. transport as well. But that, that's but not that's the issue we're talking about right support. now. And we need to do much more than that. And I'm, I've no and doubt it will isn't be Isn't it a fair point that Jennifer made earlier that if the government had been very serious about its climate targets, which have been missed, most of them have been missed, in fact, I think our energy usage went up by nearly 5% last year, that actually you would have introduced these type of, as you said, very practical, leading by example measures a long time ago? Uh, yeah, well, when I saw what we believe is going to come from tomorrow's cabinet meeting, I felt, look, that's practical, it makes sense. And I agree, it is something that should have been introduced before, not just by this government, but by the previous one and the previous one before that. Uh, Jack, are the government's hands tied a bit at the moment until we hear what comes out of the EU on Friday, particularly when it comes to the issue of this windfall tax? Yeah, definitely. Like we were moving at a rate of knots to a place where the the idea of a windfall tax was gaining political acceptability, particularly in the Department of Finance, where there was all sorts of concerns about, you know, disencouraging investment or potentially, you know, ending up at the high court on the wrong end of a judicial review if you targeted too closely to some companies. Um, and that kind of, there, there have been a landing zone emerging and then the EU came out and said that they want to do a kind of toolkit approach where they would basically uh, design different interventions that uh, member states might go with. And that has in introduced a kind of an element of uncertainty because now we have to sit back and wait and see what comes from Europe and wait and see how we can kind of bolt that onto our own budgetary response. And obviously the two timelines may not may not move in tandem, you know, because we have our own budget coming in, I think, 20 days or so. Mm -hmm. And, you know, energy market reform, designing an effective windfall tax that won't end up getting you sued. These are complicated things. Yeah, uh, this is going to sound perhaps quite glib off the back of the conversation we've just had and, and hearing from um, David's business there. But I did see speculation online today that the Christmas lights and nobody wants to talk about Christmas yet, but perhaps I do, The Christmas lights could be something that are under threat if we're being very practical. Have you heard that, Jack? I can write the headline for you now. Scrooge government turns off Christmas lights. I don't think... Never going to happen, Fiona. Never so. going to happen. Well, we probably could look at the timing of Christmas lights, that maybe they could go off at midnight or at one in the morning as opposed to being on all night. No, I, I think it's important with Christmas lights, but I think... Everything needs to be viewed through a pragmatic and practical way of how we can reduce the energy cost. I think, Kira, right. to be fair, from a practical point of view, most people are not thinking of Christmas lights right now mm -hmm. as all these bills are climbing. No, absolutely not. Uh, I just wanted to double check. All right, look, that's <laughs> it on that particular topic. My thanks to Caroline and David, who joined us on Skype this evening. And after the break is online gaming harming our kids. Welcome 
welcome back. Well, today the internet safety charity CyberSafe Kids released a report stating that our children are being exposed to vast amounts of inappropriate content online, with online gaming having a particularly big part to play. 95% of children aged between 8 and 12 own their own smart device. How are we going to protect them from possible harm? Well, Jennifer Whitmore and Fiona O'Loughlin are still with us. And we're also joined by CEO of CyberSafe Kids Ireland, Alex Cooney, and child psychotherapist Dr. Coleman Nocter. You're both very welcome to the programme. Um, I want to start with you, Alex, because you specifically looked at children, boys and girls aged between 8 and 12 years of age. Uh, what were your findings when it came to online gaming and its impact? Yeah, so we surveyed 4,500 children over the course of the last academic year, uh, as you say, 8 to 12 year olds, so children in primary schools. And we found basically that they have over. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Overwhelming access to the online world. 95% of them have their own smart device. 87% uh, of them uh, had a, a social media or instant messaging account in their name. Uh, so I think we can see very clearly that there is huge uh, access to the online world and engagement with the online world. And in terms of online gaming specifically, what were the findings? So most of the children that we surveyed were playing online games over 80%. Uh, in terms of playing over 18s games, which is a question that we ask year on year, we found that 19% uh, of the children overall were playing over 18s games. But what was interesting is if you break that down by gender, 31% of the boys, almost a third of the boys were playing uh, the over 18s games and only 8% of girls. So there is a really clear gender dimension there. And what was also, I think, quite alarming was the number of children who had just unfettered access to the internet with very little parental control or responsibility taken. Yes, yeah, so we do ask kids around, you know, the rules that they have for going online at home and the access that they have. So 34% of them told us that they can go online whenever they want. And 15% of them told us that, that they have no rules for going online at home. And certainly this is something that we would like to see change because we think it's really important, especially uh, children in this age bracket, that they do have good ground rules for going online. 
Uh, what are they seeing when they're playing these over 18 games that you're so concerned about? It's adult content. So it could be, you know, sexually explicit content, extremely violent content. You know, it is, these are environments that are designed for adults specifically. They are not appropriate for primary school age children. So we did want to really shine a light on that. Uh, you know, it concerns us about that, the kind of content that they're exposed to. Uh, Dr. Coleman, what is the impact when a 10, 11, 12-year-old boy is playing an over-18s game that perhaps has sexually inappropriate um, content or I violent content? I suppose cause and effect is difficult to prove from the point of view of does it encourage more violent behaviour or, or more sexually aggressive behaviour. What we do know is if you're introduced to something that you're not socially, emotionally or cognitively able for, that's what trauma is. And so the idea that these children are engaging in, and I think parents are a bit more lax. They wouldn't maybe let their child watch an over-18s movie, but they'll give them an over-18s game because I think we're not entirely sure. It's a very immersive environment, you're actually controlling the characters. And so it's much more likely to get, to, to, to fog that difference between reality and, and fantasy when you're a younger, younger child. child. As, As adults, adults, we can look at these things and know that we're gaming and disengage from it. Children find it much more difficult. So as that younger child is playing that game and is immersed in it, they're not able to separate once they step out from it. And the other thing is these games are built to hack our attention. So they, they're there, they're built to keep us online for more, to collect the points. And so coming off it creates a great deal of dissatisfaction. Among parents. I think we have a slight issue with your mic, Coleman. We're just coming to look at that, but I just want to go to uh, an avid gamer who is on the line this evening, the editor of The Effect.net, John Riley. John, I know you thought that the percentage of uh, pre-teens who, who would be playing these over-18 games online would actually be much higher. Yeah, I think, you know, the findings are interesting from what we, we've seen, but I, you know, I'm not surprised, unfortunately, that gamers at that age were trying to play games that were inappropriate in terms of the content. I think maybe the lump, the number is that low is lower than I thought because parents are kind of stepping in and being wise and not letting eight to twelve year olds play games that aren't for their age bracket. But again, the fact that even thirty percent of the 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 boys that were asked that what that were playing inappropriate content is still too high a number than it should be. So, a lot needs to be done both from a, par a parenting side to make sure that their children aren't playing titles that are just too old for their for the for the content that they're experiencing. That they really need to be aware of the age the age labels or ratings on the games and the kind of content that they're playing online then as well. Do you think in general? playing online, these online games, because perhaps our generation doesn't have the same experience of them, that they, in general, get a bad rap. Absolutely. I'm glad you phrased it that way and not kind of a, kind of a more kind of scapegoat way that gaming can sometimes be positioned that it's always, it's always the, the form of media to blame. Like Dr. Noctor uh, there mentioned that, you know, you wouldn't let your kids watch an 18s movie. So why do you think it's acceptable to kind of just buy them the latest Call of Duty and sit back and then let them off, you know, shooting guys in the head, which is an 18s plus game. These, 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 Primary school kids shouldn't be playing these titles. So, again, parents need to step in and make sure that they're well aware of what their kids are playing. Have the conversation with your children. Don't be afraid to kind of sit in and see what they're playing, who they're talking to in these games. And it's all about a, a, a back and over between you and your kids to understand what, what games they're interacting with. Uh, Jennifer, I'm very conscious we're talking here a lot about parents 
Whose responsibility is it to ensure children are playing these games? Well, I think fundamentally the role for parents to play here. I have four children, in, uh, you know, in that, uh, young children in that age group as well, and it is—it's a very difficult balance to, to meet. We, we, over COVID, we we saw there was a real push for kids to get them online. You know, um, everything was online, and I think we, we've been left over with a little bit of a legacy from that. But there is responsibility for parents. But I do think that parents also need to be educated and, and they need guidance and assistance when it comes to what is appropriate for their children. What are the signals? what things should they be looking out for and then also to how to have the conversations if something goes wrong because invariably you know you know children do end up in situations that they're not prepared for not emotionally prepared for and are not able to deal with so how do parents what are the steps the parents can take to actually work with their children to, to help them and I do think as well that um, you know it's important for not just parents to work in an isolated manner but also reach out to the friends uh, you know the, the, the parents of their children's friends so that it, it's a sort of whole community mm -hmm. approach as well because what I found was that my children would say well such a person is allowed you know, they can have a phone or they're allowed to do this but when you talk to the parents, it usually wasn't the case. So if the parents all group together. The yeah, I mean, it's, it's the weakest link in the chain that sets the trend. So mm -hmm. the first parent to break puts the pressure on everyone else to do it. So ideally, if you had a group of parents who were all in agreement, we won't break the chain. But again, with, with that, it's pester power because, you know, and I think a lot of parents. That are, is pretty powerful. It is. We've probably all been subjected to that at some stage you know there is a point where most parents break yeah and, and even if you go into these games and try and do the safety settings like it's so complex to put those things in i think parents get halfway through it and go oh this is too much and, and almost give that unfeathered access it's designed that way to make it more difficult because the more yeah. they can pick up about your child the more the algorithm builds more information about them and that's that's data and that's important that's financially viable and does that them. not fiona where the government needs to step in here because I, I'm just really conscious mm. we spent six, seven, eight minutes talking about this and we're talking about parents, 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 parents. But these online gaming companies, these social media platforms have tens of millions of euros behind them. Could they not take more responsibility to ensure that a 10-year-old or 11-year-old or a 12-year-old isn't able to get online and play an over And that's games? absolutely the direction we need to be going. These are very deadly weapons. And in some hands, they're actually more dangerous than a gun. Characters are assassinated, people are cyberbullied, and we have these situations where young people are accessing material that is far too advanced. They don't have the maturity or the understanding to be able to decipher that, you know, what's real and what's not. And that's why absolutely we need to have regulation of the, the online platforms. And at the moment, the Online Safety and Media Regulation Bill is going through the Oireachtas. Uh, that's an important piece of legislation. That and what pressure does that put on social media companies and gaming companies to ensure that children aren't, aren't accessing in the first place, in the first instance, inappropriate content? Well, there's a number of different measures that are contained in that. Um, the establishment of a new regulator, the establishment of a commission to be able to examine different things and an online safety commissioner. And the online safety commissioner would be the person who would be charged with that, obviously with a, a group of supports, etc. And the commission would have the opportunity to set the fines um, for those that are breaking their own rules and their own regulations. Yeah. Is that enough, Alex? Does it go far enough, that bill? Because there has been an awful lot of criticism within that bill that it, there's a lot of discussion about awareness and education and taking responsibility, but not enough pressure being put on those social media providers, 
uh, and children are clearly on those apps and the online gaming companies to ensure that children aren't exposed in the first place. That's where the focus needs to be, is it? Well, certainly we don't think the bill is robust enough as it stands. Uh, we want it to look a lot more like the Australian model, which has been a, in existence for a number of years. That The premise of, of that bill was uh, to provide a safety net, you know, so that it would be this vital uh, uh, pathway to a resolution for people who are being harmed online. So it started out being available only to children and then it evolved to address all Australian adults. So we want to see an individual complaints mechanism included in this bill. And it's not in this bill. No, can I come back on that? Uh, I happen to agree with you, but I do know that Minister Martin has appointed an expert group to look at all those areas. That has not been ruled out. They're looking at how that could be contained and how the legislation would be robust. I understand it's very complex. So the need to ensure that the correct measures are in and I, I certainly would support what you're saying. All right, I just want to go to uh, John again because like, we don't often like to quote sort of uh, the control um, that they exercise in China over their individuals, but they have introduced some pretty extreme gaming laws that perhaps we could learn something from. Bring us through those. Yeah, um, I don't think we want to go to that extreme of a level where the Chinese government last year implemented uh, incredibly strict uh, uh, guidelines about, around how much gaming uh, their kind of the younger generation or the younger population could do to the point I think they restricted online online gaming access to just uh, an hour every Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So you're looking at a total of just three hours a, a week. So that's kind of a bit way too far on the other end of the scale. And look, at I do agree with a lot of this legislation that is looking to be rolled out and how the, the large players involved here, um, mainly more so the social media networks than the gaming networks, because Personally, from what I've seen, the gaming platforms and the, the large gaming titles like Fortnite, like Minecraft, like Roblox, they have some incredibly significant and um, effective parental controls in place. And I know Dr. Nocta said that parents get halfway through and they just kind of give up, but that's not good enough. If you care about where your child is playing online, who they're playing with and what they're playing, you have to put in that time and put in that effort because otherwise... It's your own fault if something awful happens. Yeah, would you accept that, Dr. Locker? I would, but I, I think unless we have a conversation about age ver verification, we're tending to the corner of the garden while the jungle grows around us. And, and really, until that day is a reality, we are going to struggle and parents yes, are going to struggle. All of those apps that we talk about do have an age, a minimum age, 13, and clearly it's not working. Clearly, it's really easy for our preteens to bypass those. Absolutely, yeah. and, and no better people to be able to do it. But, um, and, and again, I, I think that without any, when that doesn't have any teeth, uh, you're putting all the responsibility on the user to self-regulate, to parents to self-regulate, while the companies are alluring you into that. And, and really, it's, 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 a, it's a really difficult battle for people to, to stand up to that without some sort of a, a formal backup and structure to yeah. support parents in this. And that's where the government could move here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I acknowledge that Minister Martin has said that she will look at the uh, individual complaint system. Um, and it's important that she does that very quickly because the technology and, and you know, there's so many people, get you know, children, uh, you know, who are vulnerable to this. It needs to be um, treated with urgency. But the government did promise actually that they would introduce a media commissioner on an administrative uh, perspective and start employing that and they haven't moved on that so we do need to see a sense of urgency from government in dealing with this and I do think there is a responsibility on the different companies as well to ensure that they put protection 
regulations in place. And I know... I'm conscious, Alex, you bring out this report every year, don't you? Yeah, year-on-year data, so for the last seven years. And what we're seeing is growth. Mm. We're not seeing fewer children online, fewer children owning devices. And actually, I just think we haven't caught up yet as a society. If I could make the analogy with road safety, you know, we, we have a really comprehensive response to road safety. Right. Um, and I think we need that same level of response for online safety. All right, and we're going to have to leave it there. But my thanks to Jennifer, Fiona, Coleman, Alex and John. And after the break, Liz Truss is the new Prime Minister of the UK. What are we to expect from her tenure? Well, Boris Johnson waved goodbye to 10 Downing Street today as Liz Truss took up the role as the UK's next Prime Minister. As colourful as ever, Johnson seemed to indicate that it wasn't goodbye forever. On the subject of bouncing around in future careers, let me say that I am now like one of those booster rockets that has fulfilled its function and I will now be gently re-entering the atmosphere and splashing down invisibly in some remote and obscure corner of the Pacific. Well, a little earlier, I spoke to analysis and investigations editor at Global and host of the news agent's podcast, Lewis Goodall. And I began by noting the differences between the speeches of Boris Johnson, who spoke of having an untarnished record, and Liz Truss, who spoke of riding out the storm ahead. They were very different. I think this, in a way, points to the fundamental strategic problem Truss has. Um, trust throughout this campaign or the campaign for the Conservative leadership has, I think, been unable to kind of quite alight upon whether she represents either continuity or change. And I think that's a sort of problem for, for two reasons. One, she, throughout the campaign, she, she didn't really articulate a narrative about why Boris Johnson's premiership needed to end. All she ever kept saying was, you know, Boris, he's been a, he's been a great prime minister. It's what he, she said on the steps of Downing Street again today. But then, of course, at one point she even said, well, basically, the media forced him out. It wasn't that he did anything wrong. But, of course, if that's the case, then the question at some point will inevitably be when things start to go wrong for her. Well, why not just get Boris back? Why not just get Johnson back? After all, even by your own account, according to you, it was the media who got rid of him. And in not being able to articulate whether she's continuity or change, the problem for her will be that when, you know, she starts saying things like, well, you know, we need to get Britain working, we need to start delivering for Britain. But the obvious rejoinders of that is, well, she has, her party has been in office for 12 years, and she isn't necessarily able, particularly at the moment, okay, she's only just arrived in the job, but she hasn't necessarily throughout the campaign been able to articulate exactly how much of a change she will be by comparison to what's gone before. I have to say, I was also struck listening to her speech outside uh, Downing Street today. Okay, it was short and sweet and you don't want to prejudge somebody, but I did listen and think, is that it? Is that all you have to say? It was lacking any sort of warmth or personality or promise of change? Well, again, like I say, I think it is a sort of difficult needle for her to thread because on the one hand, she's trying still, and perhaps this is, as I say, a strategic mistake to associate herself with what's gone before with Johnson. Um, she, in many ways, is coming to the premiership as the least well-known prime minister, probably since Alec Douglas Hume in 1963. 
um, you know, the British public aren't really aware of her, even though she's been a minister for a long time. She's only been a very senior minister until relatively recently. And then as foreign secretary, largely she sort of kept her head down. She wasn't sort of in a covid facing role during the pandemic, for example. So she's not very well known. And she hasn't really introduced herself yet to the public. There will be time to do that. But I think in terms of what Team Truss are thinking about this week, they know that unlike most prime ministers, they're not going to have a huge lead in time. They're not going to have a couple of weeks just to bed in. They know they need to basically get the energy announcement on Thursday right. If they don't get that right, it's pretty much game over before they've even started. And you talk about Team Trust there, and there clearly is Team Trust and everybody else. I mean, we heard about this pressure to perhaps appoint a unity cabinet, given the splits within the Conservative Party, but she has certainly withstood that pressure, hasn't she? There's been sackings a go-go this evening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, pretty much everybody associated with uh, Rishi Sunak, I think bar one, uh, has left the cabinet. So if you take the kind of like long view and not just look, go back to trust, if you look back over the period of conservative government that we've had in Britain over the last 12 years, you know, more or less, and this is a bit of a generalization, a bit crude, but you can say it has been a sort of drift to the right. It has become more rightward leaning within the Conservative Party over time. And I think you can say that this is the kind of sort of this is the sort of end game of that, if you like, or this has been the sort of the climax of that process. Um, and this is a cabinet where we look at people like, you know, Soella Braverman, who's going to be the Home Secretary, uh, when you talk about people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's going to be the Business Secretary. Increasingly, you are seeing the right of the Conservative Party, which has been exerting its grip ever more strongly for, over the previous years, really become really totally dominant in many ways now within the Conservative Party and certainly the government. Uh, Lewis, something we always listen for here in Ireland is a mention of the protocol and Brexit and the solution um, to the problems uh, facing people in Northern Ireland at the moment. No mention of it again. We're always really struck by that uh, when she outlined her priorities today and when she spoke about them yesterday, no mention of the protocol. Is that because it's not a priority? It is not an issue for your average UK voter, and she's simply reflecting that? Well, it's certainly true, bluntly, that it's not a big issue for the average UK voter. It isn't something that is discussed very much outside of when Northern Ireland is in political difficulty, which obviously it has been now um, for some time. When it is discussed, it's usually through the prism, often through the right-wing press, basically using it as saying, well, you know, this is Brussels being intransigent and, and, uh, and so on. Um, look, again, to go back to what Johnson said, in a way, he sort of, well, he didn't mention it, but he did mention Brexit, didn't he? He said he got Brexit done. And this is why it, it does sit uncomfortably for the conser within the Conservative Party at the moment, right? Which is that, you know, that is the narrative that has been in place for some time. But as we know, as your viewers will know, of course, you know, as regards Northern Ireland, at least, and the politics between the UK and Ireland, it most certainly isn't. That said, Truss is clearly someone who is obviously completely across all of this, because she was negotiating with Marcus Sefcovic the, um, the, the protocol negotiations. So it is something that she will not be able to avoid because ultimately there is such an imperative to try and get Stormont back up and running. But I think certainly in the immediate coming days and weeks, everything will be focused on energy. But yeah. as ever with yeah. Brexit, yeah. it has a gravitational pull that is inescapable at the moment that is being exerted through Northern Ireland and the protocol. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us this evening. A real pleasure. My pleasure.
the political reporter for the Irish Times, Jack Corgan Jones, is back with us. And Jack, uh, we do now know who the Northern Ireland Secretary is going to be, although we don't know that much about him. Mm. What can you tell us? Chris Heaton Harris. So, uh, Perhaps most importantly, he's a referee, so he's used to, to trying to find a, a path out between two warring tribes. But um, that look, might the, stand to him, all right. It might stand to him, yeah. Um, and, and I'm sure I won't be the only person to make that joke in the coming days. But look, I think most importantly, he's a kind of arch Brexiteer. He's a Eurosceptic. So I think if you're looking for indications of how the Liz Trust government is going to approach the whole issue of the protocol, the whole issue of Northern Ireland, the whole issue of Brexit, here's your leading edge indicator. And it's in keeping with a lot of the points that... The, points that she's made across cabinet, which have been based on loyalty, based on kind of ad adherence to her campaign, uh, and based on early and often declarations of, of uh, fidelity to her, you know, so... And we I see think Jacob Rees-Mogg in cabinet. We see Jacob Rees-Mogg in cabinet, yeah, as energy secretary. Um, and this is someone who I think you might politely say has expressed a degree of climate scepticism, has certainly expressed an openness to, you know, continuing to drill for oil and gas in the North Sea, uh, to continuing to, to openness to, to fracking and other technologies like that. So, you know, if you're looking for an indication that she was going to try and appoint some kind of unity cabinet, some someone who uh, might, or uh, ministers who might heal some of the wounds of what has been occasionally quite a divisive battle for the Conservative leadership and, and also the, obviously the, the, the keys to number 10, I don't, I think he'd be looking quite hard. And I yeah. think that if I'm... I'm just I'm, wondering, sorry to cut across you, I'm just conscious of time here. I'm just wondering how the Taoiseach, do you think, mm. feels this evening? I mean, he talked about this opportunity to reset, this change of direction, I think Simon Coveney has said. So you've got Liz Truss as PM and you have an arch-Brexiteer as Northern Ireland Secretary. Should they be scared? Should they be worried about where these negotiations are going to go? I think insofar as you can extract intelligence from these early signals, I think they will be worried, yeah. Now, what we heard from the T-shirt today and what we heard from the Minister of Foreign Affairs was the kind of conciliatory, you know, we, we can we can reset negotiations, but they can't forget the role that Liz Truss played in the protocol psychodrama that led us up to the point of near collapse in recent weeks and months. And they can't forget what kind of uh, cabinet that she's appointed now in the first few uh, hours of her of her uh, premiership, you know, and like, this is not an election that has healed the Conservative Party. It's not an election that has healed British politics. And so long as that tumult con continues, you always face the chance that they're going to reach uh, for something to kick extraneous to domestic politics. And that could be the EU, it could be Brexit, it could be Northern Ireland, it could be the protocol. Uh, Jack Harkin Jones, thanks for staying with us. And thanks to all of our guests this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram tonight, VM TV. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.